We'll hop back now into our time in the book of Kings. We'll be looking at 1 Kings 14, verses 1 to 20. I'd invite you to turn there in your pew Bibles, page 549. 1 Kings 14, verses 1 to 20. Before we read that, let's pray together. Father, we ask for your light upon your word and upon our path. Give clarity and even simplicity to the preaching of your word that we may understand it and love it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 14, starting in the first verse. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself, so you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill. And you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go. Tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city. And the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried. Because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Yes, even now. And the Lord will strike Israel. So it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river because they provoked the Lord to anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam and what he has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Tirzah. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars, and how he ruled are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. 
He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. We come back this morning to Jeroboam, a, a tragic character in a book riddled with tragic characters. And the last, time, the last time that we saw Jeroboam, Jeroboam had made two great grand golden calves, and he had said to the people of Israel, Behold your gods! But the people of Israel don't belong to mute golden calves. The people of Israel belonged to the one true God. And so at this inaugural religious festival comes a man of God from Judah. And he weaves his way through the crowd. And he cries out, O altar, O altar, this is what the Lord says. And Jeroboam is none too pleased with this unwelcome prophetic intrusion. And so he says, seize the man. But ironically, the Lord seizes Jeroboam, and his hand shrivels. And all of a sudden, the king, who was going to have this prophet killed, begins to be very friendly with the prophet and says, please, plead with God that my arm will be restored. And the prophet does, and Jeroboam is. Now one would think that this would be enough for Jeroboam to put away the mute moors that he had made and turn back to the God who had made him and made him king. But it wasn't. Jeroboam continues in his sin. And this passage before us gives us the consequences, both immediate and ultimate, of Jeroboam's sin. So we'll look at the passage in three chunks. And we start in verses 1 to 6. Jeroboam finds himself in a bit of a pickle. He's an idolater. And he has rejected the Lord who had made him king, but now his son is ill ill even to the point where they are wondering whether or not he is going to die. And Jeroboam knows that the deaf and dumb cows that he has made to put upon these altars cannot tell him what is going to happen to his son, nor can they save his son. Only the God of Israel can save his son. But Jeroboam has a problem. He's not on good terms with this prophet. And he's not on good terms with this prophet's God. He knows that he can't just waltz right into the prophet's office and ask a favor. First, he would need to humble himself and repent both before God and before God's people. He doesn't want to do that either. So Jeroboam comes up with a very clever scheme, at least clever to him. He, he clothes his wife in a disguise, sends her with some sort of a mini bribe, some bread and honey and cakes, and sends her off to the prophet to try to get a favorable word from the prophet. There's rich irony here. The irony comes in that Jeroboam is so ignorant of so many things. First, he's ignorant of the prophet's condition. The prophet is blind. You don't have to dress somebody up in a disguise to fool a blind person. So Jeroboam doesn't know anything about the prophet's situation, but more importantly than that, Jeroboam is ignorant to the nature of God. Jeroboam thinks some bread and a disguise on his wife, some cakes and some honey, is going to be sufficient to put a blindfold over the God who sees everything. And so Jeroboam, we might say, is blind to these things. On the other hand, you have the blind prophet. He's old, his eyes have failed, he doesn't have nice-looking glasses or really any kinds of glasses that he can use to see. And So here is a blind prophet. 
But the blind prophet sees the situation far more clearly than Jeroboam does. The blind prophet sees right through the clever disguise of Jeroboam's wife, sees what is in Jeroboam's heart, and even sees what is going to happen to Jeroboam's son. The seeing one is blind, and the blind one sees. We can look at the same irony in a story from Jesus' life. In Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 9, 27 to 34, we read this. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. And while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Do you see that the Pharisees who can see are blind to who Jesus is? While these blind men who cannot see, see clearly that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king of kings. Even the crowds, these commoners, they're able to see that Jesus is special, while the Pharisees who can see recognize only that he is a hassle. The seeing are blind, and the blind see. There's more irony here as well. Because Jeroboam sends his wife with a message to the prophet. But God sends the prophet with a message to Jeroboam's wife back to Jeroboam. Jeroboam's wife never says a word in the whole story. Only God speaks in the story. Because God will always have the final word. I think there's probably an application to our own time in the story that things are not always as they seem. It would seem in our own society that the the wisest, the most intellectual, the smartest, the cream of the crop, that they are, are largely antagonistic towards God and would ridicule and mock those who would who would believe in God. The elites have no faith. And it would seem that the average person like us, is the one who believes in God. It would seem as though the wise have no God and the fools believe in a God. What does the Lord say? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Those who are smart are fools. Those perhaps who are more ordinary are wise. Things do not always seem as they are. Jeroboam was too clever for his own good. He was too clever to trust God's word. He was too clever just to go and humble himself before the prophet. He was too clever. But God didn't see him as clever. God saw him only as a fool. What will you do with God? What will you do with God? Jeroboam would just use God. 
whenever it was convenient. Jeroboam would turn to God when he had a need, and he would disregard God whenever he didn't. When he wanted to be king, or when he wanted his son to be healed, now God is of use. When things seem to be going just fine without God, now God is of no use to me. Jeroboam would have God to be a sort of genie in a bottle. Someone to be summoned in times of need and to be ignored when there is no need. Jeroboam, as one commentator said, craves light from God in his trouble, but not on his path. There are others in Jesus' day who were very much the same. They followed Jesus so long as he was healing and filling their bellies with bread and fish. But as soon as there was a cost to discipleship, they fled. What will you do with God? Will you turn to him only in times of need? Is he just your genie? Or is he the Lord? Is he your king? like he wasn't Jeroboam's king. We shouldn't turn to God only when we're in trouble. Uh Uh-oh, I just passed a cop going 70 and a 45. Please don't let me get a ticket. Right? We turn to God always. When things are going well and when things are going poorly, we sing with the song we just sang, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Jeroboam had use for God only in a few hours. We have need of God in every hour. Now look with me at verses 7 to 11. In verses 7 to 11, we read the prophet saying, Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all of his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. Time out. Is is that true of David? David was an adulterer. He He was a great sinner. But God, by his mercy, has cleansed David of his sin because of his faith. This is how God sees David. Even though he was a sinner, he sees him as just and righteous. As he sees us. Praise God. Let's continue. You have done more evil than all who live before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. It's pretty straightforward. Jeroboam, you've blown it. Now the Lord is going to blow you away. He's going to blow away your dynasty, and He's going to blow away your kingdom. God gave Jeroboam great grace, and God speaks to Jeroboam of this great grace right here. And he says, Jeroboam, you received good things from my hand, and then you spat in my face. God had made Jeroboam. He'd made him. He'd given him breath in his lungs, and he'd made him king, and he'd taken him from just being a, a servant or an official in Solomon's house to being the king. That's quite a promotion. Now what has Jeroboam done? He's made idols. He's worshipped idols. 
He's made his people worship idols. He's forsaken God entirely. He tried to destroy a prophet. Now he's tried to manipulate God. Now he will be destroyed. This is exactly what we had read back in chapter 11. The Lord said to Jeroboam, However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and give it and give Israel to you. It's a pretty simple deal. Be faithful to me and I will build you a dynasty. I will build you a house that will last forever. Don't and I won't. Jeroboam didn't. And the Lord is going to wipe away his dynasty. His sons will pay the price. This reflects a very simple biblical principle. I think Jesus says it most simply at the end of a parable about a master returning from a journey to his servants. Jesus says this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Jeroboam had been given a lot. A lot. A lot. He'd been given promises from God. He'd been given a kingdom. But now God will come in judgment for him. He received God's grace with one hand and slapped him in the face with the other. What will you do with God's grace? You've received a lot as well. He's put breath in your lungs, stamped you dust with his image. He has placed you in the most prosperous, secure nation the world has probably ever seen. He's put a Bible literally within inches of your fingertips. And even if just for today, he's placed you in a church where his word, a word of life, is preached. And he has promised to you that he has killed his own son. That the death you deserve, the eternal death you deserve, you may be saved from. He's promised you eternal life a new creation where eyes don't cry, hearts don't break, bodies don't get sick and die. You have received way, way more than Jeroboam ever did. What will you do with it? Don't make Jeroboam's mistake. Jeroboam thought that God was a God who could be trifled with. He was a God who could be manipulated, fooled. God knows you. He knows you inside and out. God sees you when you're here. He sees you when you're at home by yourself in front of your computer. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He hears every word. He knows every thought. He knows your laziness, perhaps the way you have not done anything to help to make disciples of all nations, as he called us. He knows how you spend your time. 
He knows that whether you, when you stand up to say we will to a baptismal vow, he knows whether you keep it. And actually wanting and striving to serve the children of the church. He knows the way you spend your time and money. He knows your priorities. He knows your prayer life. He knows how much you love the Word. He knows you. Inside and out, He knows you. Isn't that a terrifying thought? God knows me. God knows me. But God also loves you. And He forgives those who come to Him in humility. He offers mercy and he offers grace to those who will flee to the crucified king who unlike Jeroboam was faithful every step of the way and who loved his church so much that he gave up his own life to purchase her out of sin <clears throat> and into life eternal life God knows you and even though he knows you, he still loves you. But don't be like Jeroboam. Don't receive grace from God with one hand and smack him in the face with the other. Receive God's grace, take it, own it, love it, and run with it, and never look back. Look now with me at the very last portion here, verses 12 to 20. As for you, <clears throat> Ahijah said to Jeroboam's wife, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried. Because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Yes, even now. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river because they provoked the Lord to anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Tirzah. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him, and Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. This, again, is very simple. Because of Jeroboam's sin, his dynasty and his kingdom are going to be destroyed. In fact, these, these verses set the tone for everything that comes in the rest of the book of Kings having to do with the northern kingdom of Israel. Fourteen more times we'll hear these exact words about the kings. He walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And we'll hear that right up until Jeroboam's kingdom is destroyed, never to be rebuilt exactly as God had said. But right in the middle, right in the middle of all this bad news, there's a sliver 
of hope. Jeroboam's son will not live. There will be no miraculous healing for him. But even still, he is pleasing to the Lord. The word boy here can mean anything from a toddler to a 19 or 20 year old. Has a wide range. Hebrew tradition says that this son of Jeroboam was about a teenager and he would sneak off away from his father and go off to Jerusalem for the feast to worship the true God. And whether that was true or not really doesn't matter. What does matter is that God loved this son of Jeroboam. That he is an elect. That he is a child of God. And that we will see this very son in glory. Never underestimate the power of our God to take very bad situations and bring very good things out of them. I think we're meant to see this death as a mercy. It may seem strange. It may not be what we had hoped for. Maybe we had hoped that he would live and run away and live happily ever after, but it's a mercy. The son doesn't have to live to see the destruction of his entire family and die in the gross way that all the rest of Jeroboam's family is going to die. But the author ends this section with what seems to be a very simple epitaph, perhaps, a very simple summary of Jeroboam's life. He says very simply, the other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. That summarizes almost everything Jeroboam did, doesn't it? He fought wars successfully. He was an able politician. He was a skilled administrator. He was, by all accounts, a very successful and able king. But the Holy Spirit doesn't care if he's a successful and able king. The Holy Spirit cares whether he loves the king of kings. And so the the Lord just simply brushes over all of Jeroboam's accomplishments, focusing only on his heart towards the Lord. And since his heart was rotten, the account of Jeroboam is rotten as well. What we do has value no matter what it is. What we do has value so long as it is done from a heart that loves the Lord. You don't have to be a king or a prophet or a pastor or a missionary to be able to do work that is truly the work of God's kingdom. If you are a carpenter who does his work and a citizen of the kingdom of God, your carpentry is kingdom work. If you are a mailman who delivers mail and a a citizen of the kingdom of God, your delivery of mail is kingdom work. If you're a, a mechanic fixing cars and trucks and you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, that has kingdom value. All that the people of God do under the reign and rule of King Jesus has value so long as we love King Jesus. The world needs Christian teachers and carpenters and plumbers and mechanics and farmers to be salt and light. But if we do not love King Jesus, nothing we do is of any enduring or ultimate value. If the Lord was going to give you a one or two verse summary at the end of your life, to summarize your life, what would you want it to say? 
this man started a business from scratch. Made a lot of money, died with $4 million in the bank. His kids squandered most of it, fighting over it. He built a business, but he never built a relationship with the Lord. Or how about this man built the finest chairs, but never sat down to pray? Or this woman was worshipped by her students in her classroom, but she never worshipped the Lord. Or this, this mother, she, she took her kids and led her kids everywhere they needed to go, and she didn't even pull all of her hair out doing it, but she never took time to lead them to Christ. We don't want that. We want this man loved the King of Kings and was an honest plumber. We want this woman loved the King of Kings, and she was a hard-working teacher. What will God say of you? The psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That was true of Jeroboam. He ran off after another god, and his sorrows multiplied. First he had the prophet and the shriveled hand, and then he had all kinds of issues inside of his kingdom, and then he had dealings with prophets, and his son died, and then he would die, and his dynasty would die. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And that's true of us as well. The dishonest businessman, first he has a conscience which screams against him. He has to bludgeon it down until finally the conscience is silent. Then eventually he gets found out. There's shame for him and his family. He goes to prison. His life falls apart. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. What about the pornographer? First he faces the dehumanization of himself and his unmet online victims. Then he faces the destruction of addiction in his heart, the destruction of his marriage, the isolation of his children. And then he, he dies a devastated, lonely, desolate man. We could trace that same pattern through all kinds of sin. Sins of gossip and slander, hatred, envy, rage, covetousness and greed, violence, boasting, Every one of them leads to an unending cycle of sorrow. But that cycle can be broken. It need not end for you the way it ended for Jeroboam. And the cycle is broken by being willing to do the very thing that Jeroboam was unwilling to do. By crying out to God in humility for mercy and coming running to God for mercy, in needing God, not only when the son is ill, but all the time. And there is mercy. There is mercy for those who will run to God. You don't have to be a Jeroboam. There is still hope. So don't be a Jeroboam. Don't try to manipulate God or put a blindfold over God's eyes. Don't act as though you think God can be fooled. God cannot be mocked. 
He will not be fooled. He is not blind. But turn to God. Don't run from Him. Run to Him. Throw yourself at His feet. Beg for mercy. Let Him pick you up and give you exactly what you've asked for. You don't have to be a Jeroboam. The story of Jeroboam is not just a footnote in history. It's not just a fascinating story with dogs and birds and sons and prophets. It's a warning sign to the people of God. Don't do this. Don't make this mistake. Don't die in your pride. But turn to God for grace. Jeroboam was a king, but he never loved the king. But we do love the king. And so we are different than Jeroboam. And we have hope. We love the king because that king loved us first. Let's pray. God, we pray. We pray that you would make our hearts very different from the heart of King Jeroboam. We pray that when we find ourselves in positions of sin and rebellion, that we would not disguise ourselves or hide, nor run and hide as our first parents did in Eden, but that instead we might cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. We might cry out with the girl's father, I believe. Help my unbelief. We know that you are the merciful, the gracious one, showing love to thousands of generations. So we pray that you would show us your love. When we come running to you, you would scoop us up in your mighty arms, Cleanse us from our sin. Give us all the strength that we need. That you would be our warrior king, warring against our sin, warring against all enemies, delivering us from evil and from the evil one. We pray that no matter what we do, whether we are teachers or moms, carpenters, electricians, plumbers, farmers, police officers, mechanics, businessmen, whatever it is that we do, that we would do it under the reign of our King, King Jesus. And when we come to the end of our lives, we might be able to hear the greatest words, well done, good and faithful servant, that like David, When we are spoken of, we wouldn't have our sins listed. But you would wash us so clean that you would say of us, as you said of him, he followed me with all of his heart. Did what I commanded. 
We pray all these things. Only because we are able to pray in your Son's name. Because he has reconciled us to you. And brought us into your family. So we pray, Father, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.